Philippians chapter 1. We've been out of it. We've been in and out of Philippians, as you know, for a little bit here because last week I preached on baptism. Praise God. We had four adults and one young person baptized. We're thankful for that. Hope that you had opportunity to greet them and welcome them to the family. And now we're back in the book of Philippians. And in this section of scripture, I've entitled it, Conduct Worthy of the Church. The old story is told of the Lone Ranger and Tonto, his sidekick, riding through a canyon together, when all of a sudden on both sides of the steep canyon, they were surrounded by Indian warriors on horses, covered with war paint and dressed for battle. The Lone Ranger turned to Tonto and he said, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. And you know the line. Tonto replied, what do you mean, white man? You know, he was distancing himself, obviously, from the Lone Ranger. Well, have you ever felt like the Lone Ranger? Well, you shouldn't. If you're a believer and you're in the, the, the household of Christ, Maybe you felt like at times I'm surrounded by people, but I feel like I'm all alone. That shouldn't be the testimony or the witness of a true believer that's plugged into Christ's church. And Paul the Apostle warns us against self-centered Christianity. He warns us against independent living, we could say. There are no lone wolves, ideally, in Christianity, no islands where we live unto ourselves. And so here in the last part of chapter 1, the first part of chapter 2, he exhorts us with phrases like, be of one accord, or let us, let us esteem others better than ourselves. So I want us to kind of ponder two of the exhortations, two of the admonitions that Paul has for us in chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, in verse 4. First thing he says to us, which is apropos for today, be good citizens. He tells us, be good citizens. He says in verse 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not terrified by your adversaries, which is to them proof of their perdition. It's validating that they hate God because they hate you, and their perdition really deals with their ultimate end in judgment and sin. That just validates because they hate God's people that they're headed for hell, at least at this point, he's saying. Let nothing be done through strife or selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So he, he talks about being good citizens, and he talks about two things here. Break it down. He says, first of all, be consistent in your walk. Be consistent in your walk. I'm going to guess probably all of us here today are proud of our citizenship, that you have a U.S. passport, that you are a U.S. citizen, and that you're glad to be part of, uh, of this populace here in America. Millions of people the world over would consider it a dream come true 
if they could come to America and to become a U.S. citizen and enjoy all the privileges and opportunities that are afforded us here. That would be a dream come true. Well, Paul was writing to a group of people you are familiar with, as we talked about this in the introductory material of the book of Philippians. They were living in a city named after Philippi, named after Philip, called Philippi, who was uh, the founder of that city in Greece. But after Greece was conquered by Rome, uh, it had a special dispensation given to them where they were considered Rome away from Rome, Rome away from all. They had all the rights and all the privileges of Roman citizens. They were a privileged class in the Roman Empire. So they understood that, and they were immensely proud of their Roman citizenship, and their buildings looked like the buildings in Rome. They dressed like the, the Romans did. They spoke the Latin verbiage, not their native tongue. So they were very, very immensely proud of their Roman citizenship, and so Paul is playing off of that. He say, he's saying to them, now you're a citizen of heaven. You should be immensely proud of that. And that's why he says, and he uses the word conduct, obviously use your conduct in such a way that, that you are uh, representing Christ. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. When we hear the word conduct, the emphasis is more on our walk than on our talk. Paul doesn't say talk like a Christian. He's literally saying walk like a Christian. Live like a citizen of heaven is really what he's saying to them. Conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. And the Greek word there is where we get our word politic. It is the Greek word politousthe. Polis is the word for city. Metropolis or metropolis. Metropolitan. Polis is the Greek word for city. And so it's the idea of city or, or government. Uh, is, is what he's referring to. The Philippians were free Roman citizens possessing all the rights and, and privileges that came with Roman citizenship. And Paul is reminding them that they're also citizens of heaven. They have all the rights, all the privileges, and all the responsibilities to live like they're citizens of heaven. And he's applying that to us, of course. We should be applying it to us. All believers have a heavenly citizenship, and we must walk worthy of it. For a while, the rage was there's uh, arm bracelets that said WWJ. What would Jesus, WWJD? What would Jesus do? And the idea behind it, good, noble, is when you're going through life, you're asking yourself, would Jesus go here? Would Jesus do this? Would Jesus say that Jesus is right here with me? That's the idea behind that, that I'm a citizen of heaven, and I, I want to portray, I want to live out, I want to communicate that this world is not my home. I'm, I'm, my citizenship is in heaven. That's what's the idea. And the Holy Spirit gives us some specifics here. He says, be of one mind and one spirit, one spirit and one mind. So he's applying it to the church. He's applying it originally, of course, to uh, his letter was authored to the church at Philippi, and now it's applicable to us. 
He's saying being of one mind and one spirit. In other words, as a church body, we should be in agreement together. We get that. That we let lesser things go. We are going to disagree because we have different backgrounds and different personalities and different jobs and education and whatever it is. We're going to disagree on something, but when it comes to the major things, when it comes to the important things, what we sometimes call the cardinal doctrines and, and those and how they're played out, we've got to be standing shoulder to shoulder. We've got to be in lockstep together. We're in agreement in spirit, he says, and in mind. So you have to ask yourself, am I walking in unity with other believers? And of course, right here. Am I walking in unity with other believers or their believers with whom I'm alienated? I avoid them. I don't speak to them. I don't like them. We disagree. If that's the case, Paul speaking, God speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You're not, you're not in unity in heart and mind. And he's saying we should be. And if we're alienated, we're out of step with some others, it is our responsibility to try and get it taken care of. That's why the emphasis on unity is so common throughout the New Testament. God knows our sinful attitude, our sinful nature. We get, we get hurt, we get offended, we, we feel like someone uh, didn't do us right, and so we avoid them, even though we're in the same body. And the, the whole idea is we're to reconcile with them. That's why he instituted the Lord's table. That's not the only time we try to get reconciled, but we should get reconciled. Now, maybe you've tried to get reconciled with somebody who you're not reconciled with. You've tried, and they won't reconcile. Okay, there's a escape clause, maybe we would say. I don't think it means just try it once. There have been times when I've written multiple letters to someone who would speak to me, and I, I couldn't do anything about it. They, they just wouldn't. And as a result, okay, I've tried. I'm not going to drive them nuts. I'm not going to drive them crazy. I've tried. But that's the whole idea that Paul is getting across here, is that we're going to seek to have unity and be of one mind and one spirit. And if you haven't tried to do that, you better start working on it because you can't be right vertically if you're not right horizontally, whether that be your spouse or another church member, or whatever. Unity is important if we're to stay focused and on fire for the Lord. If we're going to stay focused for the Lord and on fire for the Lord, we have to be in unity. A simple example would suffice. There's some people that went camping this weekend here in our church. Didn't sleep well, I can assure you of that. I already heard it. But they probably had a campfire. You could take a stick and pull one of the coals out of the campfire and it won't take very long before it cools down and it turns black because it's separated from the rest of the coals that are on fire. That's pretty typical of Christians. You know, COVID affected the church. I talked to Christopher Giles who was in my youth group and he was here for missions conference. And of course, he's been on the field for a long time. Chris and I were talking about churches because he's on, he's on uh, furlough and been at a whole bunch of churches. He's wrapping up his year of furlough. He said, I was, I was kind of lamenting how COVID impacted the church. He said, Pastor, I've been in like 60 churches. It's true all over. 
And you know what? There are some people that are using COVID as an excuse. They, they stayed home and watched the service on, uh, on video, and they, they got so used to watching the service on video in their pajamas and eating breakfast that they still haven't returned. They still haven't come back. And Satan has used COVID to pull some coals out of the fire and separate them off. And pretty soon, they aren't watching services. They're, they've completely dropped out of church. I had some people say, why did you quit videoing the services on Sunday morning? And I said to them, because I wanted you to come back to church. They haven't. <laughs> but I tried. So, the same is true with believers. The only way to stay stoked is to stay together. We've all heard that there's no two snowflakes that are the same. Every snowflake is a unique creation. And they're very fragile. We get that. Land on a sheet of paper and they're smashed. But you put enough snowflakes together and it can stop traffic. It can, it can shut everything down. You put enough snowflakes together. And that, that's the whole idea is when we have unity, uh, there is power. When we're, when we're linked together, we can accomplish much more than trying to go it alone as a lone wolf. So Paul reminds them how important unity is. And notice the next phrase here, striving together. We're back here in uh, Philippians 1. And he says in the last part of verse 27, with one mind, striving together. The word striving together is the Greek word where we get our word athlete or athlane. The word striving together typifies and pictures athletes as they stretch every muscle, as they uh, work their hardest and, and they're pouring Sweat all over their body is coming out. They're striving to do their very best to win the prize. That's the word that's used here together. You strive together. You work your very hardest for the glory of God. Now, that's kind of a convicting phrase when you really think about it and apply it. Are we striving? Are we really athletic in our idea of serving one another? They were to work together, and Paul says, what does he say here? For the faith, whether I am with you or not, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in the Spirit with one mind striving together. Whether I'm there or not, Paul says, I hope that characterizes the church. So he says, first of all, about being good citizen, that you have to be consistent in your walk. Nothing hurts the testimony of Christ through believers more than hypocrisy. It was said of one very eloquent but sinful preacher. When he was in the pulpit, we wished he would never get out. But when he was out of the pulpit, we wished he would never get back in. That should not be true of preachers. It shouldn't be true of parishioners. We should be living a consistent walk with the Lord. Second, he says, be courageous in your stand. He tells them in the next verses, Verse 28, and do not be terrified by your adversaries. Be courageous. Double citizenship, as you're referring to us as believers, has its advantages. But it can also bring misunderstandings and it can bring conflict. As believers, our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. 
but we also are in a world ruled by Satan. The Bible tells us that. He is the prince in power there. So our citizenship is there, but we're living right now, here right now. And so it brings some conflict between this world and the, the world that we're headed for. But he says to them what? Do not be terrified. Don't be intimidated. Don't be scared. Don't be fearful of the, of the fact that you're a Christian living in a non-Christian world. God's going to go for you. God's going to protect you. Live your life as a Christian, and God will take care of you. Be courageous is what he's saying. Courage is not the absence of fear. Everybody fears something. Everybody fears something. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the idea of, of doing right in spite of our fears, doing what we know we should do in spite of our fears. That's courage, whether it be for a soldier or a Christian, doing what we know we need to do in spite of our fears. During his years as premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and atrocities of Joseph Stalin. He was a butcher. He was a madman. He was a mess. Once as he was censuring Stalin's violent record in a public meeting, Khrushchev was interrupted by a shout from someone in the balcony, a heckler that said, you were one of, his, one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Who said that? Khrushchev roared. And the auditorium was dead silent. No one moved a muscle, hardly breathed. It was an agonizing silence in the room. And then Khrushchev replied quietly, now you know why. The point was, I was too scared, just like you're scared. I was too scared to speak up, Khrushchev was saying. Well, Paul was saying, we need to speak up. Even though we're intimidated at times and even though we're fearful at times, even though we would like to keep our mouth shut and just, you know, not say anything about a Christian experience or right and wrong, we need to speak up. Paul gives us several encouragements. I want you to note them with me in the following verses that provide confidence for the battle. What does he say in verse 28? He says, these battles prove that we're saved. He says, and not, don't be terrified, don't be fearful by your adversaries, which is to them proof of their perdition that they're under the judgment of God, but it's proof of your salvation and that from God, that you got this salvation from God. The fact that they hate you, the fact that they persecute you is proof that you're truly saved and you're living out your Christian life, Paul says. It's proof that you're saved. You know, many new believers have the idea, well, now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm a, a believer in Christ, uh, it means the end of my battles. No, it means the beginning of some new conflicts. And some things are settled, yes, but there's a whole new set of conflicts. And that's the world that's Satan, it's even our own flesh, the conflicts. So just getting saved doesn't mean 
you know, it's a downhill ride and you got, you, you got the wagon, you know, on a downhill ride. It doesn't mean that at all. You're headed for some conflicts in your Christian life. It's proof of your salvation, Paul reminds them. So, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. Second, he mentions to them, suffering for Christ is a privilege. Look at verse 29. For to you it has been granted. He doesn't say to you it's your lot or it's ordained or you're going to have to deal with this. He says for you it is granted. It is for you it is granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. It's a privilege is what he's saying. You're privileged to be able to suffer for Christ. Now we don't normally think that way but God is helping us change our thinking. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And you've seen enough videos from China or places around the world where, where Christians are uh, incarcerated or lose their life or, or meet early in the morning in a dark cave or whatever the case might be. I've shown some of those videos here. And you know they count it a privilege to suffer for Christ. They're glad they have that opportunity. And then he says to them, and by the way, I think he's saying he suffered for us. That's, that's the least we could do in, in serving the Lord to show our gratitude is to suffer now for him. He suffered for us. Look at verse 30. He says, others are experiencing the same conflict, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So Paul says, remember when I was there with you? After uh, the uh, demon-possessed girl got saved, Acts chapter 16, and her owners were so enraged that they threw us to the magistrates and they beat us, and then they threw us in, into the innermost part of the prison. So here we had been beaten and we were locked up in the stocks and, and all of that. You saw how we suffered. That's what he's referring to, how we, you saw in me when I was with you. And now you hear about me suffering in, Roman, in Rome in the prison. So he says, you're not alone. That's what he's reminding them in verse 30. If you're suffering, you're not the first to suffer and you won't be the last. Others are experiencing the same conflict. The Philippians knew that Paul had suffered when he planted the church and he was suffering now. Satan wants us to think we're all alone in the battle if we're going through some suffering for Christ, but that's not true. We're not all alone in this battle. We've had it very easy here in America because of our founding fathers and the Christian orientation that our country's had, but that's eroding very quickly, as we all know. The well-known columnist Ann Landers received about 10,000 letters a month. She was syndicated in papers all over America. Nearly every letter that was written to her dealt with a problem, <clears throat> some kind of a problem. She was asked if there was a, a predominant theme. She said, yes, problems. The one problem above all others seems to be fear. The one problem above all others that I seem to have to answer is fear. People are afraid of losing their job, their reputation, their loved ones. People are frightened by life itself, she said, end of quote. We are fearful. 
But God encourages us and he gives us his word and gives us his spirit to deal with our fears so we can be courageous. Second, in verse 1 through 4 of chapter 2, after he says to them, be good citizens, he says in these verses, be unselfish servants. Be unselfish servants. Look at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and that word if is not like, well, if it rains this afternoon. That's not, the, that's not that phrase. It means since. So he's saying, since there is consolation in Christ, and there's comfort in love, and there's fellowship with the Spirit, and if there's plenty of love or affection and mercy, now do this. That's what he's saying. Fulfill my joy. So literally, he's saying encouragement in Christ. And this word encouragement is one that you'll recognize. It comes from the word paraclete, which is one of the names for the Holy Spirit. He is called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. It's the word paraclesis, to come alongside for help. In other words, the, the, the Spirit of God will come alongside and encourage you. So in other words, when you feel like, I can't take another step, God says, I'll carry you. When you say, I don't know which way to turn, God says, I'll guide you. If you say, I, I feel so guilty, God says, I'll forgive you. That's what God does. And the question is, is that what we do? Because he's applying it to the church. Is that how we respond to others? Well, I failed. I forgive you. I'm worried. Let me give you some encouragement. Is that how we respond to troubled, struggling, worried, weak believers? We should, because that's what God does for us. So he says, you have this encouragement, this paraclesis. The Holy Spirit encourages you in Christ. And he says, then the second phrase, if there's any comfort in love and fellowship of the Spirit and a heart of mercy, they all deal with compassionate sharing in the body of Christ. All three of those phrases that he uses talk about compassion and love and ministry in the church that we should be ministering to one another. Now let me ask you, what pops into the average person's mind when they hear the word Christian? The average unchurched Joe, the average unsaved person, when they hear, oh, so-and-so is a Christian, or so-and-so has become a Christian, what would they think? Oh, no. Now they're going to be those holier than thou. And, and, you know, they don't do these things, so they're better than me. Are they going to think, well, Christian means holier than thou? Or are they going to think, oh, they're going to judge me? Christians are the most judgmental people. Or, man, those Christians, they got these strong convictions and, and they never waver and they, they have such strong beliefs about, about how we should live and how we should vote or how we should conduct ourselves. Is that what they think about? Well, Paul says here, how many of us, how many non-Christians would think of Christians in these three phrases? Loving comfort, fellowship of the Spirit, a merciful heart. Would they think of us 
oh, they've just become a Christian or they're Christians. Well, those are the most compassionate people I've ever met. Those are the most loving, caring, serving people I've ever known. Because that's how he's describing them. That's what Paul is underscoring here in this passage, and that's why John, the Apostle John, refers to us. Love is the calling card of the church. Love is the calling card. It's our business card of Christians. Love is what we have on our card. So, he's, he's asking us some, some questions here. Um, is this really the way we are? Do you practice biblical charity is what I'm asking. You can, you can really answer the question is, am I an unselfish servant by answering the three questions that I don't know if I'd say Paul poses to us here, but they're understood here. First of all, do I practice biblical charity? Do I forgive? Do I love? Do I extend myself? Am I merciful? Am I compassionate to those that even I disagree with? Second, do you pursue relational unity? Do I practice biblical charity? Do you pursue relational unity? This passage could ultimately be labeled or titled bringing great gladness to your spiritual leader. Look what he says here after verse 1, describing how we should be compassionate and loving. And he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul says, you want to make me happy? You want to make your spiritual leader happy? Work together. Love one another. That's what he says here in verse 2 of, of chapter 2. You want to make me happy? I'm in prison, but you want to make a smile uh, stretch across my face? Let me hear how loving and how unified the church of Philippi is. That's what he's saying. Make me glad when I hear how much unity you have with one another. It is an appropriate application of this verse for Christians to ask themselves this question. Does my life bring a smile or a frown to my pastor? Or my spiritual leader. When my pastor thinks of me, does a smile come across his face when he thinks of me because I, I love the people of God and I'm compassionate and, I, and I, it's, he thinks of me and it brings joy to his heart? That's what he's saying. Does my life bring a smile to my Bible study teacher? All things being right, we could say, if I'm not bringing my spiritual leader joy, I'm not bringing Jesus joy. We all have different personalities and opinions, but when it comes to the big stuff, God's word, God's will, we must think and work together, he's telling us. We're following the same conductor. By the way, I thought Addison, by the way, did a great job this morning uh, filling in here and taking us these next several weeks. Uh, well, we're, as, as Christians, we're following the same conductor. We're playing off the same score, yet we're utilizing different instruments, hopefully creating a luring harmony 
that draws people to Christ. So, the questions we're asking ourselves is, do you practice biblical charity? Do you really live out your love, even to those that you dislike or you've been offended by? Second, do you pursue relational unity? You don't let things put speed bumps in the road. You set aside the lesser things. And third, do you possess personal humility? What does he say here in these next couple of verses? Let nothing be done through, through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only on your own interests, but on the interest of others as well. Do you possess personal humility? <laughs> That's a hard thing to grab a hold of. Leonard Bernstein, you've heard that name, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, was asked once, and you've heard this, what is the most difficult instrument to play? And you know what he said. He said, well, it's the second fiddle, second violin. And yet without it, we have no harmony. Everybody wants to be first, first chair, first place. But without someone in second place, we have no harmony. Literally, Paul is saying that we need to rehearse within our mind and say as we see people, he's more important than me. She's more important than me. And that little child is more important than me. That old person is more important than me. That new Christian is more important than me. That's the playing out of that. D.L. Moody said, be humble or you will stumble. Be humble or you will stumble. As we all understand, homes and marriages churches and organizations, even nations become divided and crumble. That's how communists always work, is to divide the nation. If they can divide the people so there's warring factions, they can take over. That's how they've done it every time in the past. So we know if they can divide nations, if they can divide, Satan can divide families, if Satan can divide churches, they will, they will destabilize and they will eventually crumble. <clears throat> selfish people pursue their own interest ahead of the good of others. And Paul is saying, no, no, that's not the way Christians live. That's not Christian conduct. We don't pursue our own selfish ambitions. We put others ahead of ourselves. Let each of you look not out only for his own interest. Obviously, you've got to take care of your own family, but also for the interest of others. Our forefathers, as I have referred to the fact earlier, our forefathers had a strong Christian uh, training and background as a result of the, the great awakening that happened in the previous several decades before uh, our constitution and founding documents were written. Our nation was very pagan, but as a result of the great awakening, most of America, literally most of America came to Christ. And as a result of that, our founding documents were written, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution primarily, the Bill of Rights, at the preamble of that. Well, 
Because of that strong Christian foundation, our fathers understood how important unity was. That's why our national model was e pluribus unum, still is. Out of many pluribus, one. Because we were a nation of immigrants. So out of the many nations that were either already here or came primarily from Europe, out of many, we become one. So we're, we're diversified in our ethnic background, but we're one in our ideals, and we're one as a nation, e pluribus unum. They understood how important that was for a nation. Paul is underscoring that really for the church, how important it is. Most of you know I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow, grow up in a Christian family, a large family. I'm thankful for my family, nine children on a dairy farm in Michigan, but we were not believers. I didn't become a believer until I was in college. I had an older brother out of the seven boys. The one nest ahead of me was my brother, Charlie. He was a tremendous athlete, best athlete in our family. By shoe, by, he, made, he was an all-state football player. But uh, he started taking a box of no-dos before a game. He would just be super wired. Couldn't sleep for a couple days, but he was like on fire during a football game. My brother became an alcoholic even while he was in high school. And he's been an alcoholic his entire life. One of the true heartaches of our family, and there's many others, been an alcoholic his entire life. Ended up causing a divorce in his marriage. He's married to a wonderful woman. Ended up becoming alienated from his children. Didn't ever speak to them again. Ended up moving away from the rest of the family. And he moved to Wyoming. He borrowed money, as often is the case when people have alcohol or drug problem. He borrowed money from family members, never paid it back, so he became alienated. Borrowed money from my mother, a lot of money. Never paid it back. As a result of sinful dysfunction, and sin causes dysfunction. Whether small sin or big sin, sin causes dysfunction. And the answer is dealing with sin, really. I mean, alcohol is a problem, but it's really a dysfunction. It's a sinful dysfunction. Mankind likes to name everything else a different term, so it's not so biting, not so hurtful. It's an affair. No, the Bible says it's adultery. Alternate lifestyle. No, God says it's perversion. Now, the world says, well, it's a, a dependency problem. No, God says it's a sinful addiction. It's alcoholism or it's a drug addiction. Well, as a result of his sinful dysfunction, dysfunction, he became alienated from our family. Never came to another family gathering uh, ever again. Didn't speak to his kids, didn't speak to his siblings. And I remember calling my mother when she was still alive. My mother lived to be 95 and call her. Inevitably, the conversation would go to Charlie. Inevitably, and she would start crying. Nothing I could do about it. I did drive to Wyoming and went to see him. He was living in a trailer, a rat's nest. It was, he loved to hunt and shoot. And he had 
loading shells all over the kitchen table and it was filthy. He was a chain smoker. I never saw him the whole two days I was up there. I never saw him eat a bite of food. All he did was drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes. At times I'd say, Charlie, I got to get out of the trailer. I can't breathe. I can't even hardly see you. And I'd go out on the front porch and, and, and get a few breaths of fresh air. I witnessed to him, took him some money, took him some food. But my mother always cried. She died at 95. My brother had never spoken to her all those years. Well, the family. Sin makes us dysfunctional. I would love to see my brother get saved. He's, he's still an alcoholic, still a chain smoker. He's lost his leg. He's about to lose another one. Poor circulation. If he got saved, I know what God would say to him. God would say to him, now that you're saved, Charlie, show some humility. Get, seek some unity in the family. Practice some charity. That's what he would say to him. Truthfully, that's what God would say to all of us from this passage of Scripture.